You're listening to Smarter Conservative Radio Show 27. Hey everybody, this is Patrick Ketchum, host of Smarter Conservative Radio, and we are in February. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to start off with a history moment, and for this history moment, we're not going to go back too far in history. We're going to talk about our former Supreme Court Justice, Antonin Scalia. As I mentioned that last year, Antonin Scalia passed away at the age of 79. It was just devastating, just devastating. Luckily, luckily, this week, and we'll talk about it a little bit more, you know, let's play the little hallelujah. All right. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Yes, exactly. Donald Trump chose Neil Gorsuch to replace Antonin Scalia, which is the perfect perfect choice. And, you know, me being someone who criticized Donald Trump a lot and didn't think, did not think that he was a conservative and that he would actually choose someone who was conservative for the Supreme Court, I'm astonished, I'm amazed, I'm flabbergasted, I'm ecstatic about this choice. And so let's talk a little bit about the man that Gorsuch will be replacing, Antonin Scalia, who was an appointee of the late, great Ronald Reagan, you know, the best person that Reagan put on the court. I don't know. Uh, Reagan also put Clarence Thomas on the, uh, on the court. And these two men are, are, you know, sort of the staunch conservatives of the, of the court, or staunch originalists, I should say. Um, and actually, Clarence Thomas even a little bit more so, but he's not quite as eloquent or talkative as Antonin Scalia in his defense of the Constitution. And so that's why we sort of um, always defer to Antonin Scalia as, as sort of the lion of the Supreme Court. But here's, I want to play a little clip. He went before the, uh, the Judiciary Committee in the Senate to testify, and he gave opening remarks that just rocked the House, okay? And you see Patrick Leahy sitting up there, and he's just looks like he's bored out of his mind, while Antonin Scalia is handing it to these guys and just giving them a perfect explanation of why our Constitution is so critical. And he makes some really good points in here, and it's a little long. I'm going to play the whole thing because it's so good. He's going to talk about the Bill of Rights and why most people think of the Constitution, they think of the Bill of Rights, but the Constitution is so much more than that. And just how you can learn more about the Constitution and, and, and you know, all the freedoms that it affords us affords us and how different it makes us from other from the way other countries are organized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee. I'm happy to be back in front of the Judiciary Committee where where I started this uh, uh, pilgrimage. Uh, I am going to get even more fundamental than uh, uh, my good friend and colleague. Like him, I, I speak uh, to students especially, law students, but also college students and even high school students, quite frequently about the Constitution, uh, because I feel that we're, we're, we're not teaching it very well. Um, I, I speak to law students from the, the best law schools, people presumably especially interested in the law, and I ask them, how many of you have read the Federalist Papers? And, well, a lot of hands will go out. No, not just number 48 and the big ones. How many of you have read the Federalist Papers, cover to cover? Never more than about 5%. And that, that is very sad. I mean, if, especially if you're interested in the Constitution. Here's a document 
that says what the framers of it thought they were doing. It, it's such a, a profound exposition of political science that it is studied in, in political science courses in Europe. And yet we, we have raised a generation of Americans who are not familiar with it. So when, when I speak to these groups, the first point I, I make, and I, I think it's even a little more fundamental than the one that uh, uh, Stephen has just uh, put forward, I, I ask them, what do you think is the reason that America is such a free country? What is it in, in our Constitution that, that, that makes us what we are? And I guarantee you that the response I will get, and you will get this from almost any American, including the woman that he was talking to at the supermarket, the answer would be freedom of speech, freedom of the press, no unreasonable searches and seizures, no quartering of troops in hope, those marvelous provisions of the Bill of Rights. But then I tell them, if, if you think that a Bill of Rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a Bill of Rights. Every president for life has a Bill of Rights. <laughs> the Bill of Rights of the, of the former evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was much better than ours. I mean it literally. It was much better. We guarantee freedom of speech and of the press, big deal. They guaranteed freedom of the speech, of the press, of street demonstrations and protests, and anyone who is, who is caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account. Whoa, that, that is wonderful stuff. Of course, just words on paper, what, what our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is, that the real constitution of the Soviet Union, you think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean a bill, it means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution, has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union, which is what our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. They didn't talk about the Bill of Rights. That was an afterthought, wasn't it? That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power in one person or in one party. And when that happens, the game is over. The Bill of Rights is just what our framers would call a parchment guarantee. So the, the real key to uh, the distinctiveness of America is the structure of our government. One part of it, of course, is the independence of the judiciary. But there's, there's, there's a lot more. There are very few countries in the world, for example, that, that have a bicameral legislature. Oh, England has a House of Lords for the time being, but the House of Lords has no substantial power. They can just make the Commons pass a bill a second time. France has a Senate, it's honorific. Italy has a Senate, it's honorific. Very few countries have two separate bodies in the legislature equally powerful. That's a lot of trouble, as you gentlemen doubtless know, to get the same language through two different bodies elected in a different fashion. Very few countries in the world have a, a separately elected uh, chief executive. Sometimes I go to Europe to talk about separation of powers. A and when I get there, I find that all I'm talking about is independence of the judiciary, because the Europeans don't even try to divide the two political powers, the two political branches, the legislature 
and the chief executive. In all of the parliamentary countries, the chief executive is the creature of the legislature. There's never any disagreement between them and the, and, and the, the prime minister, as there is sometimes between you and the president. When, when there's a disagreement, they just kick him out. They have a no-confidence vote, a new election, and they get a prime minister who agrees with the legislature. And, uh, you know, the, the Europeans look at this system and they say, well, it passes one house, it doesn't pass the other house, sometimes the other house is in the control of a different party, it passes both, and then this president who has a veto power vetoes it, and they look at this and they say, uh, it, is, it is gridlock. And, and I, I hear Americans saying this nowadays, and there's a lot of it going around. They, they talk about a dysfunctional government be, be, because there's disagreement, and, 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 they, and the framers would have said yes. That's exactly the way we set it up. We, we wanted this to be power, uh, contradicting power, because the main, uh, the main ill that beset us, as, as Hamilton said in, in The Federalist, when he talked about a separate Senate. He said, yes, it seems inconvenient, but inasmuch as the main ill that besets us is an excess of legislation, it won't be so bad. This is 1787. He didn't know what an excess of legislation was. <laughs> so uh, uh, unless Americans can appreciate that and learn, learn to love the separation of powers, which means learning to love the gridlock, which the framers believed would be the main protection of minorities, the main protection. If, if a bill is about to pass that really comes down hard on some minority, they think it's terribly unfair, it doesn't take much to throw a monkey wrench into, into, this, into this complex system. So Americans should, uh, should appreciate that, and, and they should learn to love the gridlock. Uh, it's, it's there for a reason, so that the legislation that gets out will, will be good legislation. Uh, and thus conclude uh, my opening remarks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Antonin Scalia, oh, you will be missed. And then we'll get into Gorsuch a little bit more later, and uh, I'll read uh, a dissent from a case a few years ago from him. He's a good writer as well. He's a very good writer, very good expositor of the originalist theories. And, and you know, once uh, Antonin Scalia actually got up and said, the Constitution is dead dead, dead. You know, he got up in front of a school and said, that, you know, the Constitution is dead. You can't change it anymore. We're not trying to create new things. We're trying to interpret what the meaning of the Constitution was at the time that it was written. That's why he's called an originalist, as opposed to so many other justices we have in the court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Stephen Breyer, others, who are activist judges, who are justices, who are constantly trying to figure out what is the most fair thing that things could mean, instead of f trying to figure out what is the correct meaning of the law. So pretty interesting stuff. Let's move on to our economic moment. Quickly, we'll talk to Thomas Sowell. We'll listen to him. He gave an interview, and this is uh, something he said a few years ago. He talks about rent control. What's going on is that they're uh, restricting uh, the amount of housing that can be built. And obviously, if you restrict the supply while the demand is growing, the prices will go up through the roof. Qui bono? Who, do, who benefits from this arrangement? Politicians most of all. How? Because they get the reputation of being for the poor and the downtrodden, and that they're, and that they're uh, setting aside affordable housing units, usually in some token amounts. Uh, they are preventing the evil landlords from raising the rent by rent control, and, uh, and they make 
if they are able to keep the public paranoid that if they take off the rent control, you know, it'll be just sky-high prices. Uh, and so they, they gain by that. Both the landlords and, and the tenants lose. They lose in different ways and to different extents. Uh, the tenants lose because they can't find a place to stay. Uh, the landlords lo lose because uh, they don't make the, pro the profit they would have made otherwise. The builders lose because there, there's no demand for, uh, for apartment buildings if they, nobody can make a profit on it. All right, that's awesome. I love listening to Thomas Sowell. He's got so much experience in this area. All right, let's turn to Neil Gorsuch, our nominee for the ninth seat in the Supreme Court. All right, and I want to just read, you know, he's been, he's been on, on, on the circuit court for like 10 years. He's a young guy. He's like 49 years old. And I'll just read a, 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 a section from this case. He wrote, and the only re reason I'm reading it is because I think he's sort of a funny writer. He's a fun writer, like Antonin Scalia was. You know, when these guys are so smart, they just dance around everyone else. <laughs> it's kind of entertaining. So this case was funny in and of itself. It was a seventh grader who was burping in class, you know, some obnoxious kid. The teacher, the school actually called the cops on him, and the cops jailed this kid for essentially disrupting his class by burping. Then the school got sued by his mom, et cetera. You know, you, you just imagine what your mom would do if she found out police had arrested you for burping for after she slapped you, right? So here's, here's uh, th th this was ultimately taken to the circuit court, and I believe that they... Um, they said that the school was in the right for involving the cops, and Gorsuch dissented. He thought that, you know, this, this was ridiculous, and this was his, what he, he wrote in his dissent. If a seventh grader starts trading fake burps for laughs in gym class, what's a teacher to do? Order extra laps? Detention? A trip to the principal's office? Maybe. But then again, maybe it's too old school. Maybe today you call the police officer, and maybe today the officer decides that Instead of just escorting the now compliant 13-year-old to the principal's office, an arrest would be a better idea. So out come the handcuffs, and off go the child, goes the child to juvenile detention. My colleagues suggest the law permits exactly this option, and they offer 94 pages explaining why they think so. Respectfully, I remain unpersuaded. Often enough, the law can be a ass, a idiot. Charles Dickens, Oliver Twist, 520. It's awesome. He's quoting Charles Dickens, uh, Oliver Twist, in his, uh, in his dissent. <laughs> anyway, he gives all the information from the, the book and where they can find the reference, and he goes on. And there is little we judges can do about it, for it is, or should be, emphatically our job to apply, not rewrite the law enacted by the people's representatives. Indeed, a judge who likes every result he reaches is very likely a bad judge. All right, I'm going to say that again because that is so crucial. This is back to his dissent. A judge who likes every result he reaches is very likely a bad judge. That's terrific. You know, Republicans, we're not trying to put, this is just me talking. I'm not quoting him right now. We're not trying to put conservatives on the court. We're trying to put originalists, someone who believe in interpreting the law as it was originally written, interpreting the Constitution as it was originally written and understood. So he goes on, reaching for results he prefers rather than those the law compels. So it is, I admire my colleagues today, for no doubt they reach the result they dislike but believe the law demands. And in that I see the best of our profession and much to admire. 
It's only that, in this particular case, I don't believe the law happens to be quite as much a ass as they do. I respectfully dissent. So, s- some humor there in his dissent, and, uh, and you see that a lot in Gorsuch's dissents, and, and, you know, when he agrees with the verdict and that kind of thing. Um, you see a lot of humor, but you also see him taking firm stances on things. Right? He's not somebody who sort of hides behind legalese. He'll come out and tell you exactly what he thinks and why he thinks it. And so it's great, very much in the, uh, in the tradition of Antonin Scalia. And in fact, there's some pictures I saw, I think, on Drudge Report the other day of Neil Gorsuch and Antonin Scalia together in fishing outfits, you know, and they're holding up a trout or bass or something they just caught in the river. So I'm glad to know that our future Supreme Court justice uh, was friends with one of the great legal minds of our time, and, uh, you know, they went fishing together, so that's always good. The other thing about Gorsuch is that um, Senate Democrats have decided that they, they've announced that they are not even going to meet with Neil Gorsuch. They don't even want to talk to him. They say, no, you know, we're not talking, he's too extreme, we want someone in the mainstream of, you know, legal thinking and we're not even going to do it. So it sounds ridiculous, right? Now, how dare they not talk to Neil Gorsuch? He's such a good guy. In fact, when he was uh, being elected or nominated for the circuit court, he was unanimously approved by the entire Senate. Well, why are Democrats doing this? Think back to a year ago. Republicans did the same thing. They did the same thing with Merrick Garland. You remember that? When uh, Barack Obama, you know, Antonin Scalia died, in uh, what, February of last year? And Republicans came out, um, Mitch McConnell came out and said, we will not be appointing or approving any Supreme Court nominees from President Obama. You know, we're going to wait for the next president, the next president is going to pick them. You know, that was fair. You know, either Hillary or Trump was going to win. The next president is going to pick the Supreme Court justice, and we're not even going to meet with him. Now, this, now we see that was a tactical error. Because the Republicans refused to even meet with Merrick Garland, now Democrats are doing the same thing with Neil Gorsuch, right? You, this, that's the Senate's job. Their whole job is they have to meet together. They have to talk about this guy. They have to at least pretend like they're doing their job. And yeah, they can vote him down, and the president has to bring in somebody else. But that's the system. And we can't, we have to be sort of intellectually honest here. There's this big thing that happens when the administration switches from one party to another. You know, when the Democrats are in, Republicans are all about small government, all about the Constitution, all about executive orders are horrible, and, you know, we have to give the power to the people and all this stuff. As soon as our guy gets in, you know, executive orders are awesome. And, hey, media, stop bashing on, on the president. You know, he's, he's, he's doing great. And, hey, Senate, why are you being so... Uh, gridlock, you know, you got to help out the, the president. This is the will of the people. So we just switch places. It's incredible. The, the most fun thing has been since Donald Trump was elected to see that the Democrats actually know what the Constitution of the United States is. The last eight years, they forgot. It's like, they, you know, they slipped it in a drawer. They forgot where they, they misplaced it. You didn't hear them hardly talk about it at all. But now we hear all the Hollywood types coming out, slamming Donald Trump, you know, in their very vulgar uh, way. But they also, they always mention the Constitution. Oh, it's so tragic what he's doing to the Constitution. And, you know, he's just ruining the, you know, the foundations of our country. Where have you been the last eight years? Yeah, of course he is, but he didn't start that, right? He didn't start it. And so it's been going on for a while, and it went on a lot under Barack Obama. And so 
Unfortunately, it looks like Senate Democrats are set to stall, and they're not even going to do their job, which would be to actually meet with Neil Gorsuch, such a good nominee. It probably won't matter. We can probably squeeze an extra eight. We, you know, we have about we have a 52-48 majority in the Senate, a Republicans over Democrats, which means, you know, in order to pass something in the Senate, you need a 60, uh, you need a 60 vote votes to pass something in the Senate. Right? In, in the House of Representatives, you just need a majority. In the Senate, you need 60. Okay, so Republicans basically just have to get all Republicans to vote for Gorsuch plus eight Democrats. And that probably won't be impossible, considering we have a lot of Democrats that come from red states. Not a lot, but we have some Democrats who come from red states or states that Trump just turned red, like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, okay? And so if these people are going to be obstructionists, Trump's going to kill them, and they're not going to get their seats back, uh, possibly. Right? It's possible that if they refuse to put this guy in, who is eminently qualified, you know, he seems to be a good guy. Yeah, he's an originalist, and Democrats prefer activist justices to, you know, get, get their legislation through and, and not have any opposition from the constitutional interpreters. Um, even though they, they, they want that in order to keep their seats in the Senate, a lot of these Democrats are going get, to start getting nervous when it comes to appoint, approving Senator, uh, Justice Gorsuch or Judge Gorsuch. So we will see. At the end, it probably won't matter anyway, because as I'm sure you've heard a lot of talk about um, Mitch McConnell can only always, always go for the nuclear option, which is to suspend the rules, the normal rules of the Senate where you need 60 in order to pass or clear a justice for the Supreme Court, and we can do a straight majority rules. All you need is 51, right? And that is apparently something that Harry Reid put in place when he was the acting leader of the Senate, back when the Democrats were in control. And so that's the dicey thing in politics, because once you do something that is sort of underhanded and not so good, if the other guy did it to you, well, now you're opening the door, and as soon as you lose a little bit of power, they're going to do it back to you. So is there any way to stop this vicious cycle? Yeah, there is. I, I think it comes from the people. I don't think there's any way that, that politicians will stop. You know, this is politics really is something that moves on and progresses, and they find out how they can get more and more and more power. And it's incredible. It's been going on forever. You know, we talked a little bit about Andrew Jackson last week, and a lot of people thought that, Trump is a lot like Jackson. I think so, too. There are a lot of similarities. You know something that Jackson discovered? Something he innovated while he was president during the age of Jackson? He was the seventh president of the United States. You know how many vetoes the previous six presidents, the first six presidents of the United States used? They used like 14 or 15 vetoes. Okay, They just vetoed every once in a while. Only when they thought something was unconstitutional. George Washington, George Washington even said he didn't even veto stuff when he disagreed. He only would veto something, and he did it like two or three times, when he thought that, a, that, a, that something that the legislature had come up with was unconstitutional. He, he vetoed it very sparingly. Jackson, Andrew Jackson, came up with this idea that if I don't like it, I'm vetoing it. He discovered a new power of the executive branch. This is what politicians are always doing. They're discovering new, pow- new ways to gain control to gain power. And so the only way to stop that kind of thing is a, an informed electorate and, uh, and people who put the right people in 
these positions. All right, so pretty funny this week. You know, we had a great week. <laughs> I can't even cover a lot of this stuff during the week because it happens right after I make the podcast. I'm like, ah, oh, shoot, I wish I could have put that in because that was funny, you know. For example, the travel ban. A lot of people are calling it a Muslim ban. It's clearly not a Muslim ban. It's a ban of Muslims from seven countries. Not even the most populous Muslim countries, right? The most populous Muslim countries, I think Indonesia and Nigeria and a few other countries, they're not banned. They can still come in. It's clearly not a Muslim ban. It's a ban on very dangerous countries that are in chaos right now and that tend to export more terrorists than other nations, right? So, but you, you had Chuck Schumer get up. Chuck Schumer, who's the minority leader in the Senate for the Democrats from New York, uh, former friend of of Donald Trump, he got up in front of the Statue of Liberty and starts crying about it and saying, you know, this is just mean-spirited, and, and he's crying in front of the cameras, which is, you know, I don't know when it became cool, <laughs> cool to cry as a, as a politician, but I guess people see you as more human or feeling or something. Donald Trump immediately starts making fun of him and <laughs> asking him who his, who his acting coach was, so love that. But it happened a few days ago. Here's what happened more recently was the prayer breakfast, and I love the prayer breakfasts. They do this once a week in D.C., and, and Trump gets up there, and he, sa- he says this. I'm, I'm just going to let you listen to it. Everyone is very outraged about it. Here's what Trump had to say. But we had tremendous success on The Apprentice. And when I ran for president, I had to leave the show. That's when I knew for sure I was doing it. And they hired a big, big movie star, Arnold Schwarzenegger, to take my place. And we know how that turned out. The ratings went right down the tubes. It's been a total disaster. And Mark will never, ever bet against Trump again. And I want to just pray for Arnold, if we can, for those ratings, okay? <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. I mean, if you don't have a sense of humor by now when it comes to Donald Trump, you're going to need to develop one in order to get through the next four years because this guy's an entertainer. That was funny. That was, that, that was funny. It was a little tone deaf. It was a little tone deaf because of the mood of the prayer breakfast. If you watch the whole thing, it's sort of out of step with the mood. But that's who Trump is. You know, he's sort of this brash guy who just thinks his own jokes are funny, and sometimes they are. Uh, Anyway, this is what Arnold Schwarzenegger said in response to uh, Trump sort of ribbing him for his low ratings. Hey, Donald, I have a great idea. Why don't we switch jobs? You take over TV because you're such an expert in ratings, and I take over your job, and then people can finally sleep comfortably again. Hmm? All right. Well, considering the governor... The governor wasn't such a great governor of California. I don't think we want to take any more chances and put him as the leader of, uh, of the free world. It, uh, on another note, he's not even eligible because he wasn't born in this country, near, neither was it, who were his parents. The, in this prayer breakfast, the person who spoke right before Trump is a guy named Barry Black, and he is the chaplain of the Senate. I don't know if you knew that, the, the, the Senate, that we have these chaplains, official chaplains, Right, and we've had him since the pretty much the beginning of, of our organized government here in the United States, of the Constitution, 1787, I believe. Um, and he's been in there for 14 years, and he, this guy is amazing. First of all, his voice is just, oh my gosh, it's like Morgan Freeman on steroids. And his speeches are just powerful and palpable. 
and you know, just just full of the Spirit of God, really, really powerful stuff. And I love, you know, it's easy to make fun of politicians, it really is, but when you're up close and personal with them, when you're actually talking with them, you're interacting with them, these are some of, the, I hate to say this, because this is not a popular opinion, but a lot of these guys are some of the most impressive men and women, you know, some of the most loyal to their families, some, some of the most honorable of our societies, okay? Some of them are total trash and sleaze, <laughs> but some of them are just, you know, true patriots, and that's why they're attracted to this, and I think that's why our country goes on surviving, and so he addresses that a little bit, but I want to just play the end of his speech. He's a really impressive guy. He talks about, you know, he never, he, he never shook a, the hands with a white person until he was 16 years old. He grew up in a very predominantly black community, uh, his mom would pay him a, a nickel every time he, he memorized the scripture, and so he said he memorized Remember Lot's Wife and Jesus Wept and all these short ones in order to get his nickels. And then he talks about developing a relationship with the Savior. He said, you know, if God gave his only begotten Son for me, how valuable must I be? And so after his, this challenge and after he started memorizing little scriptures, he started really getting in to the Bible and reading it. And this is what he says. I just think it's so inspiring. I love that our politicians have the opportunity to hear things like this, you know, and just surround themselves with good influences with all the bad ones that are there sort of tempting and, and, and lobbying their attention. Moreover, I, discuss, I said, I got to get to know this man who died for me. So now it was not just for the nickels that I started reading the word. It was to try to find this man. And, and as I searched the scriptures, I, I, it was like a, a, a Zeffirelli movie with the man with no name. I, I, I kept finding him and in Genesis, he Shiloh. In Exodus, he's the I am. In Numbers, he's the star and scepter. In Deuteronomy, he's the rock. In, in, in 1 Samuel, he's the Lord of hosts. In Job, he is the redeemer. In Psalms, he is the great shepherd. In Proverbs, he is the beloved. I kept running into that man. And Isaiah, he's wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Micah, he is the one who's going forth of old, is from everlasting to everlasting. In Zechariah, he is the branch. In Malachi, he is the messenger of the covenant. Matthew calls him savior. Mark calls him son of man. Luke calls him the great physician. John calls calls him the word made flesh. Acts says he is the one who will mobilize us to witness. Philippians says God has exalted him so that at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. First Thessalonians says he is the one who will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and Jude says he's able to keep me without stumbling or slipping and present me without fault, without blemish before the presence of his glory with unspeakable ecstatic 
take delight in triumphant joy and exultation. And John said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day on that isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. I saw him high and lifted up. He is Alpha. He's Omega. He is beginning. He is ending. And so because I kept meeting that man, my hope does not rest in the various branches of government, executive, legislative, or judicial. My hope does not rest in the alliances that we build. My testimony is simply this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest flame, but wholly lean on Jesus. Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. God bless you. All right, I just think that's fantastic. I love that we have that spiritual power that these men and women, good men and women, can draw on. Anyway, I'd like to talk a little bit about these phone calls Trump's been making. It's been disconcerting some people. First of all, his call to Australia. And, and, and there's been leaks, right? There's been leaks on both sides. From the Trump White House, it appears there's some leaks. And from, you know, the presidents or prime ministers of other countries, their people appear to be leaking some things. And so with the prime minister of, of, of Australia, it's pretty funny. When I heard that he was, you know, playing hardball with this guy, and saying, you know, I don't want to accept these refugees that President Obama made this deal. It's a bad deal. I'm not going to do it. I want to just applaud Trump. That's exactly what he needs to be doing. He's, you know, he's, he's this person who stands as an advocate for the American people in executing the will of the legislature and the American people, right? And so if something's not good for America, he's not going to do it. That is fantastic, and I don't know why he receives criticism for being tough with other countries. You know, how can he treat our allies like this and this kind of thing? Hey, it's better to talk tough with our allies than to leave them friendless when they need a friend, the way Obama did with Israel for so many years. You know, it's perfectly fine to talk tough with people and negotiate. This is the guy who wrote the book on negotiations. And so I'm really not worried about if he comes across as too mean or too rough or too harsh with some people, with some leaders of other countries, even if they happen to be allies. Good for him. Good. Great. You know, some tactics of negotiators are incredible. You know, you remember Ronald Reagan with uh, Gorbachev? And, and, and Gorbachev said, you know, you know, one of our demands is that you, you cease Star Wars, the Star Wars program, which was kind of made up, but it was a program to that we would be able to shoot down um, missiles that were coming from Russia and so forth. And so he said that to Reagan. He said, you know, we want that program dismantled and, and stop that because it puts the United States at, at an unfair advantage, and we don't like it, and that's, that's our demand. And what did, uh, what did President Reagan say? Not a word. He stood up. He walked out of the room. And Gorbachev said that, that at that moment he knew that he had lost Right? This, these are negotiation tactics. And sometimes you've got to yell, and sometimes you've got to whisper. And sometimes, you know, you, 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 you gut check the person, and sometimes you kiss them on the cheek. And, you know, negotiations are, are it's an art. 
and Donald Trump understands that. So I'm not worried about that. With the Mexican call, there was a lot of uh, reporting that he was, we're going to send federal troops down to take out drug dealers from Mexico. That's totally untrue. What the transcript actually said later was released that it said was that uh, Trump offered to help uh, uh, Mexico with its any drug problems because we're experiencing some of the you know externalities of Mexico not being able to to control their people and uh, Trump apparently called them some tough hombres <laughs> so by the way it's hombre hombre is as hunger and so when he's saying tough hombres he's saying tough hunger so a little uh, Spanish correction there Mr. Mr. President. Anyway, uh, these ta- these calls I think have been great. So I think a lot of stuff Trump has done has been really great so far. Um, I, I I'm not crazy about ordering mandating from on high. You know all the executive orders the way Obama did, and hopefully that stops here soon and uh, and goes down to a trickle. Um, but that's pretty much all he's been doing so far. And as much as I like them, we have to respect the separation of powers as Antonin Scalia talked about earlier. Okay, I think we're just about out of time, so I want to give my recommendation for the week. My wife and I have been watching <laughs> watching this show on Hulu, and it's called The Last Man on Earth. And this actor, I don't I don't know what he's... He was on 30 Rock for a while. He was dating Jenna from 30 Rock. I'm not sure what his name is. I've seen him on a few different shows. It is a funny comedy, right? So the story is there's some kind of virus that wipes out everyone in the world except for this one guy, right, the last guy on earth. And so he just travels to every state in the United States looking for anyone who else who's alive. And, and he's just, you know, he's a stupid guy, really, really dumb, really mature. And it's like two years, and he's got this huge RV, and he just steals stuff from everywhere he goes. And so he's got, like, stuff from the president, you know, the White House, and, and from museums, he's got all the most famous paintings and Monet's and, and Van Gogh's, and it's just hilarious. And so he, then he finally settles down in Tucson, and he puts up signs that say, Alive in Tucson, and, and, <laughs> and he ends up finding the last woman on Earth, and that's when it gets very funny. Anyway, I'll play a little clip from this show, give you a little taste of it. So you got rid of the beard. Yes, I did. Oh, that was kind of cool. You did, huh? Yeah. Your chin is too pointy. You just need something to smooth it out. You feel the same way about Yeah, you look smaller. Weaker. Okay. <laughs> Who do you look like? Quentin Tarantino. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't see that. Katie but... Lang. Oh, Katie. It's Katie Lang, isn't it? Katie Lang, the, the female country singer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I like it. <laughs> well, you don't have to look at it. I guess I don't. Uh, shall we eat? Anyway, funny show. Check it out if you have uh, a little bit of time you're looking for a show to watch on Hulu. Hey, thank you so much for listening today. Uh, love talking about this stuff. Passionate about it. The more we can be engaged, the more we can be intellectually honest about the stuff that's going on, the more we find out what, it, what makes spe- America so special and what made it special the first time, the easier it's going to be to restore that greatness this time. And so uh, good luck to our president and, and both parties that, that lead our country. Um, join us next week for another episode. If you have time, I'd love to have you like us and, and, and share a comment and a review on iTunes. That would be so great. Smart Conservative Radio or Patrick Ketchum. Until next time, I am Patrick Ketchum. See ya. <laughs>